0: So I have the privilege of uh, flying next week. I hate to fly. Um, I hate to go any further than a day's travel from the center. For some reason, I guess I've taken a vow of stability without knowing it. And uh, I'm going to be going to Gethsemane, which is in Kentucky. And this is where Thomas Merton used to live. And we're going to have a Buddhist Catholic monastic conference. And so I've, I've been asked to give a talk, and so uh, it's a, pro- a talk in progress. So I'll share some of it with you today. But this is the the idea of this conference. It says, um, The theme of Gethsemane 4 is a maturation in the Buddhist and Christian monastic traditions. Um, Here is a short description of the topic. Spiritual maturation is the intentional process of being engaged in a religious tradition and its practices, teaching, and communal support in order to reach a certain goal. The fourth Gethsemane encounter will explore these traditional and contemporary practices that enable the process of maturity with the Buddhist and Christian, within the Buddhist and Christian monastic traditions. The encounter will include lectures, discussion, meditation, ritual, and fellowship. So, it sounds exciting, doesn't it? I'm, I'm looking forward to it, because I always learn a heck of a lot. Those Catholics are smart. You know, they all have masters and PhDs, and, and they can really talk well. So... I I did some investigation on what rites and rituals are and why they're important to humans and community. And then I tried to apply them to myself and thinking of all the rituals I've been involved in in the secular way uh, before I started doing the religious rituals of Buddhism. And one of the first rituals I can remember is the Pledge of Allegiance. And we had to stand up each day and face the flag and put our hand over our heart and repeat these words. And I suppose what those rituals were encouraging us to do is become Americans. And then, in the 1950s, become Americans and believe in God. Because Eisenhower preferred to have God in there to separate us from the communists who didn't have God in their Pledge of Allegiance, I guess. Uh, Then there was the high school prom, which is quite a ritual. You know, you're going to be leaving, you're getting all dressed up, you're looking good. And you're going to be making your way either into higher education or the greater society to make a living, find the perfect one, settle down, have kids, and then die. Some of you older guys out there will remember the 1960s and that was another rite and ritual for me is when I got my draft notice in the mail and had to go down and get a physical with all the other men. So this was a very important ritual because if you didn't go down there, you went to prison. And, And I was thinking about that and I thought to myself, you know, this is when America said I was old enough to die. Before then, I was sort of kept in seclusion, and I was encouraged to learn and grow and be somebody. And then I had done that long enough. And and a lot of my friends back in the 60s never came back, so they did die. And a lot of the ones that did come back were sort of different for the rest of their lives. Uh, Then there was marriage, which is a really big and expensive ritual, you know, you can spend like 20 grand on getting married, you know, and it's just amazing. Now, I, I never got married, and, and I think my problem was, I never found the one, I only found the many. <laughs> and, and I guess that's okay. In my line of work, it wouldn't have worked out anyway. So then we have childbirth. Man, that is big too. You know, I I, I used to have my handprint in clay and little shoes that were brass covered, and and once you have kids, you know, everybody starts to sell you stuff so you can raise the kids in a really skillful and and wholesome way, and you have bottles and liners and beds and blah blah blah. So a lot of men and women go through that ritual. And and somebody asked me the other day, what do you think the meaning of life is? I think, number one, it's survival. And I think, number two, it's replication. And after that, it's just up to you. You know, that we're just here to have more of us and survive long enough to have more of us. And we're really doing well. Seven billion and counting. (laughs) then we have this ritual of retirement. You know, we come to a place in our life where we're really old now, or at least we're old enough not to want to work. And and you might have Social Security, you might have a little savings, and, and then the AARP calls you and wants you to join, and Medicare and its various hospital companies call you and they want you to join, and everybody wants you to test your blood pressure and see if you have diabetes, and and... And, you know, it's just, it's a strange place to be when you get to that place in your life. Uh, Last week I went to the dentist, I had a little chipped tooth, and he's saying, well, you know, we can do like the cap and the crown, you know, it's like this much money, but you know what, it'll last for 30 or 40 years. Or or we could do a veneer, which is like half the price, and you might get 15 years out of it. And I said, well, that may be long enough. (laughs) After retirement, you're sort of gauging how much time you got left and what, how much you want to spend, you know, and how much is necessary and how much is just an ego-driven thing. Social security, really important, you know. We've been paying into it our whole lives. When you became of age, you got your social security card. And, and they just give it to you automatically. I remember when I turned 62, I wanted to get my social security. And they said, no problem. And... I didn't even have to talk to them. I was on the computer. And I said to myself, how do they know who I am? They do. (laughs) Then we have death and burial. Talk about rites and rituals, huh? This is a big deal, because all of us left behind are wondering who's next, and how is it going to be, and is it going to be okay to die, and how much pain and suffering will I go through? And wouldn't a heart attack or a car crash be the best way to go, because it's so instantaneous, but then you don't get a chance to say goodbye to everybody you want to say goodbye to, and it goes on and on and on. And then you just bury them in fiberglass or metal coffin, so they'll never, you know, deteriorate in any particular way. And and you think back on, on the life they lived and the choices they made and how short it was. And and then you go have a cup of coffee. And life goes on. We're just like... So these are some of the places in our life where rites and rituals can help us get through, give meaning, understanding to the process. So I thought what I would do is talk about the rites and rituals I do as a Buddhist. And, and I know every time I ask people, are you a secular Buddhist or a religious Buddhist? When I do that here... And against the stream is a lot of secular Buddhists. They're using Buddhism the way the Buddha intended, which was therapeutic. I am suffering. How can I end my suffering? The Buddha said, this is how you can end your suffering because this is how I ended my suffering. First century. If Buddhism is to, is going to exist longer than 500 years, we need to make it a religion. And they did. And it's a wonderful religion. And it does everything it's supposed to do. We have bodhisattvas to help us. We have rites and rituals to do every day if we're so inclined. We have salvation in enlightenment. It's it's really a nice religion. So I, coming to Buddhism for the first time, came to Buddhism because it sounded really interesting. Not understanding what a religion was in the sense of daily practice and transformation. I had been raised a, a Lutheran and we were just sort of told what to do and then we did it and then we got to go home after church. And Buddhism says, well, we we're going to tell you what we do and then if you want to do it or not, it's up to you. And if you want to do it, it's best to do it consistently because then you get the most results. Okay. So so I started and and I went to IBMC, International Buddhist Meditation Center, and we have a wonderful ritual designed for beginning Buddhists. And I hadn't realized it was designed for beginning Buddhists, but our founder, Thich Tien An, was a Vietnamese monk. And he had founded four other centers, or three other centers, specifically for the Vietnamese. But then he founded a center for the Americans. Now... I'm not sure how an American looks, because we have all sorts of different-looking people coming to our center who are Americans. But one of the things Tikkinan wanted to do was introduce Americans to Buddhism. So we were sort of non-denominational. We had a little Pali, we had a little Sanskrit, we had a little Tibetan and Japanese, and we have it phonetically spelled out so we can say the words even if we don't know what the heck we're saying. But we also have the English translations, which is really good for Americans because Americans are monolingual and proud of it. And so I came to Buddhism with my English. And then I had to learn a little Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism. I was never good with languages other than English, and I'm still working on that. And so when I came to Pali, I was really, I don't know if I can say it. So it took me a, much longer than the average person to be able to say it. And and so our Sunday service, our rites and rituals start this way.
1: Namo ta Bangavato Arahato Samasamundasa Namon ha sam magavaton nagahaton sama sambhu nasa Namon ha sam magavaton nagahaton nasa
0: Now, one of the nice things about doing that chant in the way I just did it is it vibrates your nasal cavity. Now, you may say, well, so what? But when you vibrate your nasal cavity, it massages your brain and transforms your consciousness. And if you've ever looked at somebody who's been chanting for 20 minutes or a half hour, they are blissed out. They are just smiling at everything. They're relaxed. Life is wonderful. So besides the rites and rituals, there are physical and conscious, physical and conscious transformations that occur. What I just said was this. I honor you, most holy, most noble, completely awakened one. I'm honoring the Buddha. So when I came to Buddhism, it was the Buddha. But then I said, well, what is a Buddha? A Buddha is someone who has rediscovered Buddhism, rediscovered the Dharma, actualized that truth without a teacher, and then is able to explain what he or she did to help others transform themselves. There are four levels of being a Buddha. There is the stream-enterer, the once-returner, the non-returner, and the arahant. The arahant has the exact same nirvana as a Buddha. The difference between the arahant and a Buddha is the Buddha had no teacher. The arahant did. The arahant had the Buddha as their teacher. So I come to Buddhism thinking there's a Buddha, and now there's like 28 Buddhas, and there's different levels of Buddha, And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be a really complicated journey. So now we come to the next part. And the next part is taking the refuge. So we take the refuge every Sunday. We take the refuge every day. We take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma. We take refuge in the Sangha. The Buddha, as you know, is one who has achieved nirvana through his own effort, volition, wisdom. And the Dharma turns out to be his teachings. The teachings that allow us to achieve our nirvana. And the Sangha are the monks and nuns, the the relative Sangha, the monks and nuns who are practicing the teachings of the Buddha. The Maha Sangha. See, it's never just one thing. The Maha Sangha are the monks and nuns who have achieved nirvana already. So we have the, the Maha Sangha, the enlightened Sangha, we have the regular Sangha. I fit into that category. And then we have the lay Sangha. We have the men and women who have chosen to take the five precepts and the three refuges. Upasika, Upasaka. Okay, so that, so that's the Sangha. And it goes like this.
1: Buddha Saranang Gacchami. Dutiampi Budam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Budang Saranang.
0: And then we would do that with the Sangha and uh, the Dharma. Now, if you listen carefully, I said those words differently. I said the words differently the second time, and the same the first and the third time. So the first time was budang saranang gachami. The second time was budam saranam gachami. And the reason it's done that way is because nobody's sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> so we're covering our bets by doing it two ways. One of those two is the correct way. So see, when you get into rites and rituals, you're learning a lot about yourself, but you're also learning a whole lot about the tradition and the direction and the goal of that tradition. Now, the most important thing we do every Sunday is we chant the Heart Sutra. This is an amazing document, and there are so many levels to understand the Heart Sutra. And if you're just a Vipassana person and a Theravada person, you may or may not have come in contact with the Heart Sutra. And I was very much a Theravada person when I came in contact with the Heart Sutra. And what I saw was this. These rascals are saying the Theravadins are wrong. And they're showing specifically where they are wrong and misguided we have the new teachings, we have the new understanding, we have the greater understanding, that's why we're the Mahayana, that's why we're the great vehicle. So I'm going through all this stuff in my head, looking at these rascals, saying all the stuff that I've learned in the Abhidharma, the psychology of early Buddhism, is wrong, because it's based on an atomic theory, the theory of atoms. But the Theravādins changed the word atoms and made them dharmas. And the Theravadans said, at some point in the Abhidharma, that all reality is based on the dharmas. These are the building blocks of our experience. The dharmas are the building blocks of our reality. Now, there are 16 different meanings for dharma, and this is simply one of the meanings. And then the Mahayana said, no, 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 it's wrong. The dharmas are empty. Empty. You think they're solid and have a momentary existence. They do not have that. They are empty. And so I am going through this Heart Sutra thinking to myself, what the heck is this thing talking about? And why is it recited every day in every Mahayana monastery all over the world? Can it be really that important? Can it really have the true meaning of ultimate reality? And is that what they're trying to explain And that's exactly what they're trying to explain. They're trying to explain the ultimate reality in a relative context. So we come always to a category error and that means I come to a state of confusion because even after 20 years of chanting the Heart Sutra, I am still learning stuff and I am still reading books about the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is like four or five paragraphs. And I have read numerous books, numerous commentary on these five paragraphs. It's an amazing document. I am going to now recite it for you so you can hear what the Mahayanists feel about ultimate reality. Now we have some people that are really important in here. We have the Buddha. He's there listening to this. We have Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, which later became known as Kuan Yin. And we have Shariputra, who's a a monk under the Buddha, a renowned monk under the Buddha. And it goes like this. Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply, the Prajna Paramita clearly saw that all five skandhas, are empty and passed beyond all suffering. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form then is emptiness. Emptiness then is form. Sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness, not born and not dying, not stained and not pure, not gaining and not losing. Therefore, within emptiness there is no form, no sensation, perception, volition or consciousness. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body or mind. No form, sound, smell, touch, taste or dharmas. No realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness. No ignorance and no ending of ignorance. Till we come to no old age and no death. And no ending of old age and death. No suffering, origination, extinction, or path. No wisdom... And no attainment with nothing to attain. Because the Bodhisattva follows Prajnaparamita, the mind has no hindrance. Having no hindrance, there is no fear. And far from all fantasy, there is dwelling in nirvana. Because all Buddhas of the three times follow Prajnaparamita, they gain complete and perfect enlightenment. Therefore know that the Prajnaparamita is the great holy mantram, the great bright mantram, the wisdom mantram, the unequaled mantram, which can destroy all suffering, truly real and not false. So he gave the Prajnaparamita mantram, which goes... Gate Gathe, para
1: gaate para samgate,
0: There we go, the most profound document in Mahayana Buddhism. Okay, that's exactly how I looked when I first heard this. <laughs> I'm thinking, what the heck? So over the years, and after reading books and listening to teachers, I started to dissect what it was they were talking about. So first we have this thing called, form does not differ from emptiness, and emptiness does not differ from form. And I'm going, wow, this is a trip. It sounds profound, but it doesn't make any sense at all. So, in one of the books I read about, the Heart Sutra, they said, you know, change the word emptiness. Don't make it emptiness. Make it momentariness. Momentariness. So, form does not differ from momentariness. Momentariness does not differ from form. So, what does this mean? Think of the ocean and think of the waves. It's an often used metaphor for ultimate reality and individual existence. And here we are, and we have this momentary experience. Our eyes and our ears and our nose and our tongue and our body and our mind all come together in this one moment and grok it. Now, if you've never read the book Stranger in a Strange Land, you don't know what grok means, but that's what it means. We come to a present moment experience and know it. We grok it. We understand it. Now, what humans do with this momentary experience is they add something. They add past and future. And why do they add past and future? Because they need to work with stories. We, as humans, live in a relative reality that's filled with stories. That's how we give meaning and understand our life. So, we take this moment that only ever happens once. You can never re-experience a moment again. And we solidify it. We take the flow and we make it solid. And it becomes real. And it becomes a concept. And that concept are the building blocks that we use to create our life. But in fact, it's just a momentary experience. So it's empty of past and future, and it's empty of self-being. It doesn't exist independently. The Buddha said nothing can exist independently. Everything is conditional. Everything happens because of something else. Nothing stands apart from that process. But as humans, we can solidify a process and make it an event. And that event lasts into the future and has its roots in the past. Now we come to the five skandhas. Really an interesting way of looking at who you are. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. The building blocks of every human. That's all we are. See, the Buddha never said we're simply one thing. That one is a monotheistic invention that allows us to solidify the process of the moment and make it an event. But the Buddha said nothing is ever one. Nothing is always many that are connected and in process. So a human can be broken down into name and form, nama rupa, but a human can be broken down into form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. So let me explain how that might work. What we have is form. We have the form of the eye, and we have the form of the chair. And when the eye form comes into contact with the chair form, a rudimentary awareness arises. It's nonspecific. It's simply aware of this form. Okay? Now, with that is associated a sensation. When this consciousness arises, which is a, a nonspecific consciousness, a sensation arises with it. And that sensation is one of three kinds. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Neutral. If it's neutral, we are indifferent to the chair. We don't need to use it. We don't need to move it. We don't even recognize it sometimes because it's not what we're after in that present moment. But if we are tired, and if we do want to sit down, that is a pleasant sensation as that consciousness arises because of eye form and chair form, and now the process of perception kicks in. Perception is is what we've learned. Perception are all the concepts, the 10,000 ways of looking at the world around us. And so we know it's a chair, and we know it's a gray chair, and we know it has four legs and a back, and we have this perception based on past experience or education that allows us to know what it is, and that leads to the next part. It allows us to do something with the chair because we know what it is. So we have to know it before we can use it, and we know it, so now we're going to use it so volition arises. And volition are all those habit patterns and past experiences we've had with chairs. So we know how to approach a chair, we know how to sit in a chair, we know how to get out of a chair, we know how to push it aside to make way for people who are walking, We know how to use that chair, it is a volitional activity based on previous experience, habit patterns, and useful memories of a chair. That is what a human is. If you can look at yourself in that way, as those five aggregates, as those five skandhas, you will never suffer. Because there's no part of that model or paradigm that can suffer. Ah, but we do suffer, and that's the issue, because we don't look at ourselves in those five ways, or those two ways. We look at ourselves in the one way, the way we are. Wow. So what did the Heart Sutra say about that? The Heart Sutra said... Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. They are also empty of own being. They are empty of independent existence. They require other things to exist for them to exist. Okay. Emptiness. Momentariness. Now we continue. All dharmas are marked with emptiness. All the building blocks of early Buddhism the dharmas, the atoms, they also are all momentary and lacked own being. They do not exist independently either. Nothing exists independently. It is a flow. They are not born. They are not dying. They are not stained. They are not pure. They are not gaining. They are not losing because they are not dualistic. They are beyond dualism. Wow. Okay. Okay. Beyond dualism. That's that place where all things are interconnected and interdependent. This is a non-dual reality. This is a sort of an ultimate reality, if you will. And it lacks the two sides. We have a coin, we have heads, and we have tails. We have a good day, we have a bad day. We have light, we have dark. What they're talking about is the true nature of non-dual reality is the coin itself. Those sides are just distractions. Those sides just allow us to think about it in a certain relative way and use it to our advantage. But ultimately, they do not exist. just the workings of the self. Therefore, within emptiness there is no form, no sensation, perception, volition or consciousness. Okay, think about the six. Now we've got the six sense doors. We've got the eye and the ear and the nose and the tongue and the touch and the thinking. Six sense doors. Okay, you have the sense door of the eye. It has eye consciousness associated with it. The Buddha said there isn't just one big consciousness and all the stuff goes in there. That's how I always looked at myself, it's one big consciousness. But no, each sense door has its own specific consciousness. So we have the eye, we have eye consciousness, we have form. We have the ear, we have ear consciousness, we have sound. And the Heart Sutra is saying, no, that's not right. The Heart Sutra says, Therefore, with an emptiness there is no form, no sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, no form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or dharmas, no realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness. Things can't exist independently. And unfortunately, we're reading a relative statement and applying it to an ultimate reality. So it takes a little gymnastic quality of mind to fully appreciate what the heck they're talking about. Because you can't talk about it. They're talking about something you can't talk about. And we've been talking about it for hundreds of years. So you get there, and there's no old age and death, and there's no ending of old age and death, because there's relative concepts... And you have to have one in order to have the other, you see. You have to have life so you can have death. But if you get rid of life and you get rid of death, then what do you have left? You have an ultimate experience and intuitive knowing of the world. It is called, according to Robert Heinlein, grokking. Okay. Because the Bodhisattva follows Prajnaparamita, the perfect wisdom, the... This is, this is a wisdom that allows us to find transcendence and salvation in Buddhism. This is the stuff. They say you need two things in Buddhism. You need compassion and wisdom. Prajnaparamita is the great wisdom. It's the place that can take you there. Okay. So then you find that, you know, it's the great holy mantra and all the Buddhas have, have recited it. And then you actually did the gata, gata, paragata, which generally speaking is not translated, but it means gone, gone, gone beyond to the other shore. And it has magical, mystical qualities in chanting that. The sound, you know? There's a lot to be said for sound and sound, if you do it in a certain way, transforms your consciousness and transforms the world around you. And if you don't believe sound will transform the world around you, just listen to the politicians for a while. I don't like that sound, but it does have a transformative quality. Okay, that's a brief introduction to the heart suture. We only lost two people. That's good. Okay. (laughs) Now we come to our purification process. We need to purify ourselves. We are... Filled with greed, hatred, and delusion. Those poisons create so much suffering for us and those around us. The world would be such a better place if we didn't have them. And it's not that we're sinful, it's we're stupid and ignorant, you see. That's the deal with Buddhism. We don't have to deal with sin, we have to deal with ignorance. We have to wake up, we have to become wise. And in becoming wise, we need to be humble. Because we do not stand alone and apart. We are always interconnected and interdependent. All those who are suffering is, become part of our suffering. All those who succeed becomes part of our success. So it works both ways. We do not exist independently. So we bow and we recite this. I respectfully bow to Shakyamuni Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, All Buddhas of the Ten Directions, Boundless Buddha Dharmas, and the Virtuous Sangha. I have lived many lives under heavy karmic obstacles. Desire, anger, pride, illusion, and ignorance. Today, because of Buddha's teachings, I know these as mistakes. Therefore, with sincere heart, I confess. I confess. I vow to eliminate evils and to do good. I respectfully entreat the Buddhas for their compassionate assistance, body without sickness, mind empty of frustration and anxiety, every day happy to practice the wonderful teachings of Buddha in order to quickly depart from birth and death, understand mind, see into the true nature, develop wisdom, and gain spiritual power in order to rescue all my honored elders. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, friends, and relatives. And may all living beings attain complete Buddhahood. That is a powerful statement. That is, that's a humble way of looking at life. That I have been poisoned because of this greed, hatred, and delusion, but I now see it clearly because of the teachings of the Dharma. And I am going to change the direction of my life, but more importantly, change the direction of my mind. And it's all about mind in Buddhism. Now, I, I, I have to admit, you know, I get lost sometimes in these things. And you have 10, 20, 30 people chanting, and you have a mokujo, it's being hit, the gong is being rung. And there's a certain community that's created out of chanting together. so it's, it's a wonderful practice of community. But sometimes you get caught, the mind gets caught on a phrase or a word or a sentence, and and you just sort of stop. And it has a new and deeper meaning, something you've never perhaps thought of before in that way. And then you lose your place and you work real hard to catch up and figure where everybody is. and, And then maybe after the chanting, you'll go and reflect on that. And say, I wonder why I saw it differently today than I did yesterday or the day before. What changed in me? Somebody came to our meditation center the other day. They said, you know, it hasn't changed a bit. In the 40 years it's been in existence, it hasn't changed hardly at all. And I said, yes, it doesn't change, the people do. That's what's happening here. The place pretty much looks the same as it did last month. But the people are changing all the time. So every time I do this chanting, I try to get into maybe a word or a phrase or reflect on it. It has the power of personal transformation. It allows me to have different colored glasses on, if you will, and look at the world through my rites and rituals, and not secular rites and rituals. Not fashion, not hairstyle, not clothing, not shoes, not what's on TV, not what's happening at the at the civic center or the auditorium, but what's happening in my practice. How is that affecting the way I respond to the world around me? And is it allowing me to respond and not have to react? Because reaction is habit is often based on, on an idea, of concept of right and wrong, filled with prejudice of how it's supposed to be, how it could be. Reactions come out of that. But response comes out of something much deeper. It comes out of heart. It comes out of heart. And in the Mahayana tradition, we call it heart-mind. That's when the wisdom and compassion start to blend and create a whole new place of experiencing the world. So after doing our daily confession, then we do our bodhisattva vows, realizing that in taking these vows, we will never succeed. We will always fail, but we take them anyway every time we do our rites and rituals. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Buddhism has been on this planet Earth with Siddhartha, alone, not the 27 before, for 2,600 years. We, we have so many more people to save than we did 2,600 years ago. Wow. And can we ever save anybody? Even ourselves? Some forms of Buddhism would say you can't even save yourself. Why try? Deluding passions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them all. Wow. Delusion, passion... Thirst, craving, I vow to end them all. Would life be any fun if we had no passion? No craving? Would anybody ever go to Disneyland? Dharma gates are limitless, I vow to study them all. There are so many ways to the Dharma, and each of us has found a gate that's open for us. But no two in this room, I would venture a guess, Came to Buddhism, came to the Dharma, came to meditation in the same way. We all have our own karma, our own stuff we're working out, and for some reason we heard, saw, thought about something in Buddhism that clicked. And here we sit today. Buddha's way is supreme, I vow to attain it. This is not based on faith. We don't have the faith to say Buddhism's way is supreme. We have the confidence to say Buddhism's way is supreme for humans. This is all about being a human being. Dogs, you know, I'm sorry, they're going to have to be reborn as a human before they can become enlightened. Cats, they're going to have to be reborn as a human. Encourage your little furry friends to get their next rebirth as a human and they might have a chance at salvation and perfection. So the Buddhist way is designed to allow us to realize, not find, not create, but allow us to realize our perfection that has always been there. It's just been covered with greed and lust and hatred and delusion. Then we say a prayer. May suffering ones be suffering free. And the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and the sick find health relief. It's an intention. It's a wish, if you will, that all those who are suffering in all the many ways humans suffer find an end to that suffering. Then we say, I wish all this merit. Now, those rites and rituals have merit created. You're working hard, and your payoff is merit. That's how you get paid when you do this stuff. You get merit, you have an merit account. And when you die, you can have a good rebirth because you have a lot of merit in your account, or maybe a not-so-good rebirth because you haven't deposited merit lately in your account, and it's getting a little light. So each time we do this ceremony, these rites and rituals, we are acquiring merit, and now what do we do? We give it away. And why do we give our merit away? Because we get twice as much in return. Any good businessman would tell you, if you give your merit away and get twice in return, give it away. So we give it away, and we say it this way, I wish all this merit be extended to everyone, that we together with all beings may gain Buddha's way. We give it away, and we receive it twofold. Cool. Now we end. We end our rites and rituals by this: Om
1: Mani Padme Hum.
0: Om Mani Padme Hum. The jewel in the lotus. Our Buddha nature. Our potential. At realization, we honor that place that each one has. Each one of us is carrying that jewel, the potential for human realization. And in order to actualize it, it seems to me you need a commitment, number one. You need to practice rites and rituals at whatever level you like to practice them, because there is a transformative quality to them. It also interconnects you with all those others who are practicing the same rites and rituals. You need to meditate. You need, that's the cultivation of mind. And a lot of people come to Buddhism because they want to meditate, but there's so much more.